0: This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us
1: this week. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever given much thought to what we do here together on Sunday mornings? Have you ever come here and asked yourself, why do we listen to a sermon? Why does uh, each Sunday, why does someone step up here and then talk to us, from the Bible. You ever wondered about that? Why do we preach? Why do we listen to sermons? Now, perhaps some of you might say to yourselves, I don't know, I've never given much thought to it. In fact, I didn't know I had a choice in the matter. I thought that's just what we do. We come together, we sing a few songs, we say hi to one another, and then someone talks to us for 30 to 40 minutes, hopefully 30 sometimes. And then we go and talk a little bit more downstairs and then we go on our way and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Some of us haven't given much thought to what we do each Sunday morning. Others of us have given it some thought. We might think to ourselves, you know, if I were honest with you, I don't much like this part of the service. I like the first part. I like singing the songs. You know, the band does a really good job. I like the prayer. In fact, I come for the prayer afterwards. I want to pray with the people of God because I need help. Or maybe some of us say, you know, I I actually could do without the whole thing on Sunday mornings. I come because I really like the connections that I have here. Uh, And I guess Sunday mornings is just part of the whole thing. If I'm going to enjoy those other things, I guess I have to listen to a sermon. And if I kept asking that person more about what it is that we do on Sundays, they might say, and let me let you in on a little secret. You see this phone that I have? I'm not really reading the Bible along with you. (laughs) I'm on the Internet. (laughs) So go ahead and say what you have to say, because sooner or later we'll all go downstairs and enjoy a cup of coffee. Still, others of us might think about what it is that we do on Sunday mornings and say, you know, I actually like the sermon quite enjoyable. Uh, you know, every once in a while I have a few things that the preacher says that I like, that helped me, that encouraged me, that make me think about myself and my life. Or you might say, you know, uh, sometimes I hear something in the sermon and it's something that I didn't know before. I didn't know that that's the way this happened historically, or this is what happened in Scripture. And so I listened to the sermon looking for some kind of information that I didn't have before. That's why I listened to the sermon. So why do we do what we do on Sunday mornings? Why do we gather together, open up the Word of God, and hear someone preach? I want us to ask that question today. And to look at our passage together in Nehemiah chapter 8 and investigate that together. That will be one of the questions that we ask together. Uh, The second question that I want us to ask together is related. And in fact, when we answer both of those questions together, we will find a sense for why this passage matters to us today. Who we are and what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. The second question I want us to ask is... Why does Nehemiah's building project matter? Some of you have been with us this time for the last few weeks when we've been in the book of Nehemiah. Some of you are just joining us and you heard uh, the passage that was read from Nehemiah chapter 8. And one question that we ought to ask is, why is this important? Why is this city plan significant? Uh, is it Important because the city of Jerusalem was coming back, and if that's the case, maybe we could read any other city plan. Why not bring uh, Daniel Burnham's city plan of Chicago and find out how the city of Chicago was laid out? Maybe that would be just as significant, just as interesting to help us to understand how cities come together. Why are we concerned with the development, the building, the rebuilding, the renewal Of the city of Jerusalem. The answer to those two questions why do we listen to sermons and why does Nehemiah's building project matter will help us to understand not only the text that we have today, but also our own lives and our own practices together as a community. Why do we come together? Why do we do this? Through these two questions, we're going to find out what God has been doing is doing, and will do for his people. So please turn there with me, if you aren't there already, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Book of Nehemiah
0: chapter 8. As Aaron pointed out,
1: Nehemiah is before Psalms, after Ezra. In the Old Testament. Looks like everyone is there. Good. Good. I'm not going to read the whole passage, uh, mostly because I don't want to reread those names that Aaron read so wonderfully. He did a wonderful job. But what we're going to do is we're going to investigate together this passage. Uh, Some of you have been with me in preaching classes. Hey, Nora. And so, in some ways, what we're going to do might be a little bit different. Uh, The key word is inductive, Nora. We're going to walk through this passage by asking questions together, investigating this passage together with those two questions on our minds. Why do we listen to sermons and why is Nehemiah's building project important? So let's start with that first question. Why is this building project important? Now, if you remember in the series... Pastor Carlos started off by telling us about this man, Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was a man in the king's court, and he feels this conviction, this concern for his hometown, for the city of his people. And so he asks the king if he could go back and rebuild the walls. Now, we've been reading this book and gleaning some insights from this man. On the one hand, we can say that Nehemiah was a respectable man. He prayed, he prepared, and with wisdom he acted and relied upon God whenever there was opposition in front of him. We've talked about that over the last several weeks. So in some sense, we can read this book and say, well, Nehemiah provides for us a good example for what we ought to do when we are seeking to cooperate in what God is doing. That's one part of the way that we read this passage. But there's something else happening. In fact, if we were to understand why this building project matters, we have to take a longer view of God's history. Uh, if you will, with me, uh, let's think back to the history of God and his people Israel. I think back all the way back to Exodus. You remember that time, long ago. Uh, what's happening? The people of God, well, they're not yet the people of God, but this community has been enslaved in Egypt. There they are, enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God, the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth, because they are enslaved. So they cry out to God, and God hears them. You know the story. What does God do? He rescues them. He rescues Israel out of the hand of Egypt, and he walks with them in the wilderness. And God says, from now on, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And this relationship is solidified with the covenant. In other words, God makes a covenant with these people and says, I will be faithful to you, and in response, I want you to be faithful to me. So he provides a law for the people. A way of living so that they might be able to live out their purposes as the people of God. Now think about this. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the law of Moses, which will come up again in a few moments. But what was the law of Moses doing? What was God doing with these particular people? He was saying, I am your God, you are my people, and what I expect of you is for you to love me and to love others as I have loved you. In other words, I want you to be a city on a hill, to use New Testament language. I want you to be an example for the rest of the nations, because all around you there are wicked nations who do not serve the one true God. There are people of wickedness, of people of injustice, but you will be different. You will be marked not only by your love of me, the one true God, but you will also be marked by your justice, by your mercy. By your care for those who are aliens and strangers, those who are in need of help, those who cannot help themselves, you will help those. Why? Because I helped you when you were in need. This is the kind of people that you will be. But you know the rest of the story. How did the people of God do? Not well. Time and time again, even in the wilderness when they were traveling with God, Though God's presence was with them, though God's word was with them, the people of God hardly reflected their identity as the people of God. They were not true lovers of God. In fact, the prophets often described the people of God as adulterers, sometimes even worse, as prostitutes. He said, you have prostituted yourself. You were in a marriage relationship with Yahweh, with God, the one true God. And though he has been faithful to you, you have been unfaithful. You have worshipped other gods, false gods, idols. And not only that, but you have also been a people of injustice. There is no mercy here. There is only violence. There is no goodness here. There is only wickedness. The people of God looked more like the people of the world. And so the Lord sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And the prophets told the people, listen, though the presence of God is with you, though you are in the land that God gave you, you need to stop doing what you are doing. You need to love God and you need to love others. You need to be a people who are a people of justice. Otherwise, God is going to send you into exile." He is going to take those nations that you so want to be like. He is going to allow them to take you as their slaves yet again. The people didn't listen, though. They continued in their sin. They continued in their wickedness. Eventually, they were in exile. But the Lord is a faithful God. He is good to his people. And the Lord sent other prophets who said, listen, still I will love you. There will come a day when I will cause you to return back to the land. And that return will mean that I will return to you, and you will return to me. And so even in exile, the people of God were waiting, were hoping for that day when God would return to them, when their punishment would be over, when they would be able to get back in relationship with Yahweh. So when we think about this building project, we think about Nehemiah and the other men, Ezra, Zerubbabel, these other ancient kings who felt that it was time to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. What I want you to wonder, what I want you to ask is, is now the time? Is God returning his people from the exile? Is God renewing his covenant? Is God bringing the people back into relationship with him? Will his presence again be with his people? And will they again be his people? That's the question that should be on our minds when we think about why this building project matters. It's not just about building an ancient city. It's not just about repopulating a land that was empty. It's about whether or not This is the time when God would return to his people. When God would build that eternal city, that Jerusalem that would truly be a city on a hill, that Zion, as the psalmists call it, when the presence of God would be seen and Israel would truly be a blessing to all of the nations. God doing something here. It's no wonder then, that when we read throughout the book of Nehemiah, something is happening. We ought to be thinking about the prophets and the Mosaic law. In fact, that's what we should keep in mind as we come to the first three verses of this chapter. Look with me there in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man, as one people, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square from the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, I want you to think about What's happening here?
0: As we all laugh with what's happening with our kids. Where are we
1: in Jerusalem? City walls have been built. That was the last sermon last Sunday. The work had been completed. And if we were reading the the companion book that goes with Nehemiah in the book of Ezra, we would know that the temple had also been rebuilt as well. So here we have all of the people uh, who are gathered here in this place. They're in the city, in Jerusalem, and they gather together as one community, one people. Why is that happening? Now the reason for this is indicated to us by the time marker that is told to us twice. In the previous chapter, in chapter 7, and then in the beginning of this section that I've just read. What day is it? It's the first day of the seventh month. Now, I will forgive you if you have not memorized the book of Leviticus, but the first day of the seventh month was significant for the people of Israel. In fact, even today, Jewish people celebrate this day as Rosh Hashanah. It is the Feast of Trumpets. I asked Ugo to bring his Jewish trumpet, his shofar, but it's locked away in a box, and you know, he just moved. It's the only box that's still unpacked, believe me. His, his house is lovely. But we didn't have the, the trumpet with us, so we're going to blow the trumpet, you know, it's, it would be great. But the Feast of Trumpets, what in the world was the Feast of Trumpets? Well, the Feast of Trumpets was this occasion, according to the book of the law, when the people would gather together for the whole day. There was no work, it was a Sabbath day, a day of rest. They would gather together to worship God. They would blow the trumpet to announce that the Feast of Trumpets was beginning. And what would they do? Well, they were required to bring sacrifices to God. Why? Because they were worshiping God. And so they would bring a bull, they would bring rams, they would bring uh, 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 grain offerings to the Lord as a sacrifice, as a worship to God. So the fact that this is that day matters to the book of Nehemiah. Why? Because the people are returning back to the law. Think about it. What was the problem with the people in the past? It wasn't that they were no longer in Jerusalem or in the cities near Jerusalem. It wasn't that they failed to go into the temple to make sacrifice. It was that they were disobedient to the law, to the covenant. In other words, they were not lovers of God and they were not lovers of others. And so the book of Nehemiah is going to bring back to mind that covenant law. What does it look like to love God and to love others, to be the people of God? And so they gather together. It's no accident here that we are on this day because here the people are practicing the Levitical law. But something is missing. Look again
0: at that passage. Where are they? They're at the water gate. Are they at the temple?
1: They're not at the temple. The temple has been built, but they're not at the temple, nor are they making sacrifices to God. You should wonder about that. If the book of Nehemiah is going to portray these people as faithfully obeying the law of Moses, why aren't they making sacrifices to God? I think it's actually a positive answer. It's not that they are misappropriating or misunderstanding the law. It's not that they did not yet know because the law has not been open for them. What's going on here is that here we see a response to the problem that the people had back before they were put in exile. For the sake of time, I won't go to those particular verses, but think again of Isaiah chapter 1, where the Lord says, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I want you to be a people who love me. I want you to be a people of mercy, of goodness, of, of, of justice. Or think about Hosea, where the Lord says, Enough with your festivals, enough with your feasts. I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. So it's as if Nehemiah is anticipating a renewal of people's hearts. The people didn't need to be more religious. The people didn't need to give more sacrifices. They needed to be a people whose heart was devoted to God and therefore would become the kind of people that were faithful people of God. So here they were all gathered together as one ready to hear the Word of God. Not to make sacrifices, but to hear the Word of the Lord. Why? Because what we come to find out is that we need the Word of God to be the people of God. In order for us to understand what it means to be people of God, we need the Word of God's instruction. We need to understand what the Word of God is telling us as it is shaping us into the kind of people that God has called us to be. Uh, Let me put it this way for us. Some of us think about what it means to be the people of God, or put another way, what it means to be right with God. And we think, well, I come to church on Sundays. I'm here, aren't I? Good. Doing something good with my life. Or maybe you take it a step further and you say, look, I don't even, uh, not only do I come here on Sundays, I even go to a small group. I do double duty. I show up. That's good. But that's not what it means to be a part of the people of God. God doesn't want your religious practice. What God wants is to be in relationship with you. God wants to love you. He wants you to love him, to worship him. But it goes a step further. God wants you to become the kind of people that rightly reflects who God has called you to be. It's not just about being lovers of God. It's about being lovers of others, to be the kind of people that are filled with mercy, to be the kind of people that are filled with goodness, to look out for those who are hurting, those who are marginalized. That is what it means to be the people of God, according to the Old Testament according to what these people are growing to learn. Some of us come to church on Sundays. We've made profession of faith. But if you ever bumped into us outside of this church, you might think, that's a harsh person. That's a mean person. I don't know if that person has the love of God in them. Because when we think about how God has loved us, the natural outworking of that love is that we will be lovers of others. Not only those of us who are here in these walls. I hope that we love one another. We ought to love one another. But what what about those who are outside of these walls? What about those who are in need? Those who need to see the love of God manifest through the people who have been called to be witnesses of that love. That's you and I. This is part of what it means to be the church. God has commissioned us to participate in what he's doing. So we join him in the work. We join him as his witnesses, as his testifiers of this great work. It's not enough just to say, hey, I showed up. Hey, I love God personally. That's good. That's important. That's necessary. But the call for us is to also be lovers of others as we are moved by the love of God. Let's keep going. We've got communion today. That's also important. The next thing that we want to think about is not only why this matters in the large scheme of things, in terms of what God is doing for his people, in calling back the people of God. We also want to think about what in the world happened in this event. Uh, Aaron did an excellent job of reading it for us. And what I want us to consider is not to recount everything in this narrative, but instead to think of it in... uh, as if we were getting portraits of an event. Here we have a preaching event. And what's interesting is not is what is not said. We don't find out what portions of the law Ezra read to us, nor do we find out what is said about those portions of the law. Instead, we get portraits of people participating in this event. Let's think about their participation. First, we see the leaders. Ezra first, the scribe, is asked to open up the law. So he gets the book of the law. He reads it. And by the way, he's standing on a raised platform, kind of like this, right? So that everyone can see him. And then something unusual is happening. There are 13 others standing next to him. Now, this is important because this is a symbol for the people of Israel. You have the 12 tribes of Israel plus a representative of the Levites. Again, all people are together as one under the word of Moses, the word of the Lord. So here they're all together reading the word of the Lord. The, 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 the word of the Lord is read and then something else happens. After this, he blessed the Lord. This is verse 6. He blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. We'll come back to that in terms of the people's response. They lifted their hands. They bowed their heads. <clears throat> but look what happens next in verse 7. The Levites begin to explain the word of the law. That is, they are preaching. Uh, they are Giving understanding. They are explaining it. They are dividing it. And then giving sense or giving clarity to the people of God. In other words, what preaching becomes here is a reading of the Word, an explanation of the Word, and then uh, making sense for it for their very lives. They're going to do something about it. Here's what it really means for you. I hope this sounds familiar for what happens here on Sunday mornings. It is important for preachers to open the word of the Lord, explain it, and then give sense for what it means for the rest of life. That is our responsibility, preachers. For just 30 seconds, let me say a word to those of us who are preachers. If you have been called to preach, you are entrusted with the word of the Lord. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of study, a lot of preparation. You're, we're not up here to hear you. I, I've, I've given this quote before, but as, as uh, um, I can't, his, his name's leaving my mind. African American preacher, really important African American preacher, used to say, Preacher, we're not up here for you. We're here to see Jesus. Said another way, Preacher, we're not here to hear you. We're here to hear the Lord. This is why we stand up here, to preach. It's not about us, it's about the word of the Lord. Let me keep going for the sake of time. So we we see a portrait of the leaders expounding the Word of God, preaching the Word of God. The second portrait that we see are the people themselves. What do the people do during this event? Well, first of all, they respond, amen, amen, as Ezra blesses God. He is our great God. They say, amen, amen, truly, truly. And then they worship God. They bow their heads and worship to God. And then... Notice what happens. The word is explained, and the people are weeping.
0: They're crying. Why do you
1: think they are crying? Throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, we see these portraits of people crying in response to the word of God. We have a sense in which there is conviction when the word of God is preached. The people were convicted because they knew they also were guilty before God. Uh, Those sins of the past were also their sins. They also needed to repent. So the people are convicted and are weeping at what is taking place. The word of the Lord brings conviction. But what we see in the next part of the passage is that the word of the Lord also brings comfort. Uh, The people said to The leader said to the people, this is not a time for weeping. Yes, you are weeping. You are convicted, but be strengthened in the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, we think of the words of Isaiah. The people walk away, why? Uh, With joy, why? Because they understood the Word of God. Here's what I want us to understand. When the Word of God is preached, what ought to be happening is that we ought to be convicted by our own sins. But there is also comfort in the preaching of God's word. Why? Because God is doing something here. Remember our first question. God is bringing about a renewal. It is not just a word of conviction. It is not just a word of you are in sin, you are in trouble. But it's a word of comfort. God is faithful and will draw near to you And make you his people. Some ways we might think of this as a gospel message. You're a people in sin, but God is faithful and just and he will forgive you those sins. The third portrait that I want us to pay attention to here in this passage is what God is doing in this passage. God's message is a message of conviction and a message of comfort, but notice to whom the word belongs. Look at verse 2. We didn't look a great deal at this. But look at verse 2. Ezra the priest brought before the assembly. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the verse right before. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that, that the Lord had commanded Israel. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God. Not the law of Moses. It is the law of God. God is speaking to us through His Word. God is the one who brings that message of conviction. God is the one who brings that message of comfort. Just like we've seen all throughout this series, when we think about what's happening in the sermon, it is a cooperative effort. Everyone is involved. The preacher is involved to make clear the Word of God. The listeners are involved in anticipation of the Word of God. And God Himself is delivering that Word. God is active.
0: But to what extent is God active? If we think about this passage,
1: the people are weeping and then are strengthened by the Lord. They're comforted by the
0: Lord. What's missing still?
1: Remember, the expectation of the people in this return was not just that they would come back to Jerusalem. was not just that they would yet again have a temple. But it was that the presence of God would be with them. This is a bit of a spoiler. Sorry, gentlemen. Those of you who are preaching more. We will never have an account in Nehemiah of the presence of God coming again to dwell in Jerusalem. There should be a bit of sadness there. We'll see at the end of Nehemiah, by the way, that there is still some more sadness, some more work to be done. Because this book of Nehemiah is about an expectation. We are waiting for something, we are waiting for the presence of God. We preach, we listen to sermons, because we are a people waiting. We're people who are in need of the word of the Lord. We are a people who are in need of understanding what it means to be the people of God. But the people of Israel were waiting for the presence of God. And we'll see next week when, I, when we take up the rest of this chapter. All of this chapter is an expectation. It is a waiting for what is yet to come, what is to be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Why might I say that? Because in the person of Jesus, we see all of the expectations for this new city. Yes, this is the beginning when the people of God will enter back into Jerusalem, but they are still waiting in exile. They are still a people in enslavement. They are still a people waiting for their king. That king will come soon. There are a people still waiting for the presence of God. He will come soon. And what is beautiful about the person of Jesus is not only is he the king that the people were waiting for, not only is he the word of the Lord, but he is also the temple of God. That place where we see the very presence of God, that place where we have our sacrifices, our offerings that are laid on that altar of the cross that place when we can come and meet God himself. The reason why we listen to sermons, because we are a people learning to be the people of God. And how have we become the people of God? We've become the people of God because of God's faithfulness, because of what God has done, is doing, and will do, to establish that city. We'll talk more about that city next week. The establishment of that forever city with our forever king and us, his forever people. But as we wait for that time, we need the word of the Lord. We need the word of the Lord to teach us how to be the people of God. We need the word of the Lord to help us to see what God is doing, what he will do, and what he is doing now in
0: this life. Time is, oof, man, he's a slave driver. People
1: of God were waiting there with expectation, looking for God to speak to them. What I want us to think
0: about is every time we gather together, congregation, church, people
1: come waiting for a word, expecting the presence of God, expecting God to minister to you, to speak to you, to help you to understand where you need to be convicted, where you need to be comforted, how you might see God at work, and how you might be reminded of the hope that is true in us because of Jesus Christ. Some of us hear that word, comfort, comfort, and wonder, when is my comfort going to come? That comfort is in Jesus. Our expectation is in Jesus, our King, who establishes our city. City of Zion, the city of righteousness. We're convicted by the Word of God. We're also comforted by the Word of God because it tells us, just as Ezra declared The Lord is a great God. And the people of God, when they receive that word, respond, amen. Amen.
0: This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewschai.org.